I'm glad to be back in the pulpit again with you after uh, being out for a couple of weeks. Appreciate Art and Vincent filling in for me and just granting me a little bit of a breather in that. I'm also uh, delighted to uh, be able to return to the Book of Romans uh, with you. So uh, you might want to just open your Bibles up there to Romans chapter 5. Keep your thumb there for a moment. Page 1129 if you're using those few Bibles. You know, this afternoon is, of course, the big game, right? My team got uh, blown out uh, several weeks back, and so, uh, but I've gotten over the morning of it all, and I'll probably tune in and uh, watch those other teams play. But yesterday I, w- I was down at Costco. Carol and I went down to Costco, and the place was just mobbed. And uh, we were having a hard time trying to remember, figure out why so many people were there on a Saturday morning. And then we figured it out. They must be there getting all their snacks ready for the Super Bowl game, right? And uh, I love Costco. It's, uh, it's just a great place to go. You can, if you time it strategically, of course, you can, you can eat a, about a seven-course meal as you walk around in there. And, and, uh, and then I also enjoy sitting on all the furniture. So... Trying out all the various and, and new kinds of furniture there, and I'm not alone, by the way. I, I've seen some of you there, and so I know what you do. You know, we have this old couch in our house that uh, it had become broken down with use. It's got recliners on the end, and uh, on one end of it, the back was kind of tilted a little at the, you know, toward the side on, and this and. Uh, so over the New Year's holiday, William and I decided that we were going to fix it. And so uh, I got out my tools and we flipped the couch over and began to take apart the back of it uh, so that we might fix this thing. Um, the interesting part is that neither William nor I are what you might call a skilled craftsman. But what we lack in skill, we make up for in confidence. And so we were, you know, just tearing this thing apart. We were going to fix it for sure. And once you know, right about that time, Carol walked into the room and she asked what we were doing. And we said, we're going to fix this couch. And she said, are you sure it's going to work? And being two men, we answered her as all men would. Trust us. Right. Trust us. So, um. We, we got it fixed. It doesn't recline anymore, but we did. <laughs> but the back's not tilted, so that was the important thing. <laughs> you know, as a rule, we don't like uncertainty in life. Isn't that true? We don't really care for uncertainty. Even though in most uh, circumstances, it's really mostly just an annoyance to us. But it's something we don't like. We don't like uncertainty. But there's one place where it's more than an annoyance. In fact, it's of the utmost concern. And that's when it comes to where do we stand before a holy God. There can be no room for uncertainty in that one area. In the text before us this morning here in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, Paul is addressing the issue of assurance of salvation. He has been teaching on justification by faith alone, and his audience, following along with this, they would be thinking right about now, is this method safe? Is this safe 
I mean, completely excluding law-keeping in order to be justified before God. Is that safe? What happens if we arrive at the judgment and find out that it was all just a cruel joke? So Paul is going to address that question. That is really the question that is next in his argumentation in Romans chapter 5. So we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 together. We're only going to get through verse 1 this morning. But as we look at verses 1 through 11 together, we find six reasons why a Christian should have assurance of salvation. So that we will live boldly for Christ. So that we will live boldly for Christ. Why assurance is so critical to living boldly. Paul is going to tell us why we can be assured. Paul says in verse 1 here, chapter 5, let's just jump into it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first reason. We should have assurance of salvation because we have peace with God. That's his reason. Because we have peace with God. Now look at the text with me here. Notice how it opens with a a conjunction, therefore. Anytime you would come to a text and you see a therefore, you have to ask yourself, why is it? Therefore, right? And so it would point you backwards. It's a way to summarize something that has gone on before and then draw a conclusion from it. And that's what Paul's doing here. He is looking backwards. In fact, what he is going to do is he's going to say, in light of what I have taught you in chapters one through four, therefore. Such and such and such a truth. The first truth being that we have peace with God. Notice also Paul pulls himself into this. This whole section, verses 1 through 11, uses the first person plural, we, pronoun. Paul is including himself into this. He is part of this. We, including Paul, have peace with God, he says. So, what is the teaching of chapters 1 through 4? We've been out of the book of Romans long enough that I think it's worthwhile taking just a few minutes and and recounting what it is we learned. Because we've spent a long time in this book leading up to even this point. In fact, there are a number of you that are here that have come here since we began and you don't even know what we talked about back there. What is chapters 1 through 4 about? So turn back to chapter 1. Go back to verse 18. Really, the argument begins there in verse 18, chapter 1. And let me just remind you, and I will remind you using sermon titles, if I can do it that way. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and running all the way through verse 32, we preached five sermons on that section and we entitled them all The Deep, Dark Descent of Man. Do you remember that? The Deep, Dark Descent of Man. It all begins in verse 18 where it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and they exchanged the, the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. And so we begin that long, dark spiral down into sin. Beginning with the refusal of God's revelation of Himself in nature, which Paul says is clearly seen and understood, meaning there are no atheists in the world. Everyone knows God. In fact, Paul would say it's not just that they know there is a God, they know the God. But what they know about Him, they suppress in unrighteousness. They don't want Him. They don't want Him. And that refusal to, to acknowledge God begins the downward spiral of sin and corruption, which Paul outlines here. And this, by the way, is not an individual fall. This is a societal fall. This is the fall of, of humanity. This here in chapter 1 is Gentile humanity. It is the plunging of the race, the ruination of the race of men down into this deep, dark abyss. Paul goes on, chapter 2. And there we entitled a series of six messages in all of chapter 2 called The Danger of Growing Up Christian. Six messages on this danger. Because there is a danger for those who grow up with close and constant contact with the Word of God and the truth of that Word is that they grow cold and, and careless to it. And so Paul outlines here in Romans chapter 2, speaking to the Jewish people, his brethren, that they are, have no excuse before God either. And in fact, their condemnation is even higher. Because they have not only the natural revelation of God, they have the special revelation of God. That is, they have the very Word of God. And yet it has done them no good either. So Paul brings Gentile humanity before the bar of judgment and pronounces them guilty. He brings Jewish humanity before the bar of justice, his judgment, and pronounces them guilty. And thus all of humanity stands accountable before God. Guilty before their Creator. Paul then wraps it up in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, all the way through verse 18. We entitled a pair of messages there called The Depth of Depra uh, Depravity. How bad is it? How bad off are we? And so Paul brings his 14-point indictment there on very specific terms, pulling all the race together and demonstrating just how lost we really are. At this point... He has attacked every single thing that a person could try to stand on and make themselves right before God. He has slapped it out from underneath them. And he is now ready to introduce the only basis by which you can be made right before God. Justification by faith alone. 
And so in verses 21 through 26, we preached four messages called the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, verses 21 through 26. This is what it's all about right here. This is a, this is one of the most dense concentrations of gospel truth you can find in the scriptures right in these few verses. And it was there in those sermons that we introduced the doctrine of justification. Justification, it, it means to to acquit primarily in a legal sense. It, it talks about being judged or being acquitted from your sin before the bar of justice. When it comes to our standing before God to be justified is to be declared or pronounced just. No longer liable to punishment for sin. Because justice in your case, my case, our case has been satisfied. There's no longer any legal grounds by which we may be condemned. Justice has been satisfied. Verse 20, chapter 3, Paul says, For by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Why? Verse 23, Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, the justification must come from outside of us. It must come as a gift to us of God's grace. Verse 24, chapter 3, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That gift of grace, that grace gift of justification can come only through the propitiation that is the satisfaction of the wrath of God that is being poured out upon sin. Verse 25, chapter 3, God publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood, this Jesus Christ. How can we be justified before God? How can we be acquitted? How can we be held no longer liable to punishment for our sin? It is because it has been poured out on Jesus Christ. He has been punished for us. Justification then brings us into a new and permanent status before God. But Paul's not quite ready to let it go. And so in chapter 4, he comes back to his topic one more time. And we preached four messages here. They're all entitled Sola Fide, justification by faith. And Paul contrasts this justification by faith with five different other ways that were currently popular among the Jew and people for being justified. And he makes the contrast here and he shows how each one of these doesn't hold up and thus it can only come to us from the outside as a gift of grace. Chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, he contrasts faith justification with law-keeping and says law-keeping is inadequate. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, he contrasts sola fide, justification by faith, with a works-based justification and says it doesn't hold up. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, he contrasts sola fide, faith justification with circumcision and says circumcision won't do it for you either. Verses 13 through 16, he contrasts sola fide with the Mosaic law and he says the Mosaic law will not make you right before God. And then finally, verses 17 through 22, 
chapter 4, he contrasts olafide with sight. That is, the faith that justifies must be a faith not based upon sight, but upon the character of God as for who He is. This is the faith that justifies. The faith that Paul's referring to back here in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, this kind of faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that this justification, sola fide, justification by faith alone, brings you into a new relationship with God. A relationship that is permanent in its status. You have gone from being the enemies of God to His friend. To His friend. You no longer reside under His wrath. You now enjoy His peace. God, for you who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, believing that His death justifies you, you have now entered into a peace relationship with the Creator of the universe. Peace, verse 1. The translation here of the Hebrew word shalom, a word you're all familiar with, I'm sure. This kind of peace that Paul says we now have with God because of our justification by faith moves beyond the simple idea of a cessation of hostilities and brings a more positive idea with it of well-being or prosperity or, or completeness or even salvation itself. All wrapped up in this idea of having peace with God. Isaiah 52, verse 7. This is a familiar one for you. In fact, Paul over in Romans 10, 15 refers to this verse. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Numbers, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, the great Aaronic blessing, the benediction, right? There in the book of Numbers, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you shalom, peace. Give you peace. This is the peace Paul says that we now have with God, Romans 5.1, because we've been justified by faith. Now, in this context here, Paul is not speaking about peace in terms of, a, of an inner sense of well-being. That would be the peace of God. You can find that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Instead, what he's talking about here is a peace relationship or, or a relationship of peace with God. It's a status into which we have come by virtue of justification. It's a status that down in chapter, or, uh, same chapter, verses 10 and 11, is intimately related with the concept of reconciliation. Do you see that down there? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Reconciliation is this peace that Paul's talking about in verse 1. When we, at the moment of our justification, we move into a new relationship with our Creator. 
Our old relationship, Paul tells us in Romans one, two and the early part of three is a relationship of what? Wrath. God is angry with us. But now we move into a new relationship, a relationship of peace. God is now at peace with us. We have been reconciled to him. And how it is, look at verse five, the end of the verse, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through his substitutionary atonement. It is through his cross work. It is through his death on our behalf that we have been justified by faith. And we now enter into this new peace relationship. Justification is a legal declaration. It's an acquittal before the bar of God's justice. Reconciliation or peace involves a restoration of a personal relationship. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Being justified, being acquitted, being declared free before the bar of God's justice in the first part of the verse, we now are at peace with God. God is at peace with us. Now, in a human court, let's see if we can use this analogy. In a human court, there is never any kind of deep personal relationship between the judge and the accused, right? In fact, if there were a relationship at all, the judge would excuse themselves or, or, um, from the case. But, and conversely, if, if the accused before a human judge is found guilt, guilty, the judge doesn't have any personal hostility towards the accused person. And if the accused person is declared not guilty, they don't then become a friend of the judge. So there is really no connection in a human law system. The judge has no relationship. If the person's guilty, they don't hate them because of it. If they're declared not innocent, they don't become best friends because of it. There's no relationship. But between God and a sinner, it's completely different. The issue is altogether personal. It is altogether personal. And that is because God is both the creator of all people and all sin is fundamentally at its core an offense against who? Against the judge, against God himself. Psalm 51, verse 4. Years ago, when I worked in banking, and many years ago, I was involved in the... Uh, the uh, workout department of the bank. Now, the workout department is a, just a euphemistic way of saying it's the part of the bank that deals with the bad debts. Okay? And so that's where you foreclose. So I was in the foreclosure section, and um, I was on the commercial side, and, and there were various businesses that had run into difficulty and violated loan agreements and so forth and couldn't repay their money. And so they would come and have a meeting with the bankers, and at some point in time, we would usually have to say that it's all over, which means you're out of business. OK, and we're going to begin to seize assets and do all these things that we have to do. And we would say to them, it's nothing personal. It's just business. And that was true. I didn't despise these people. I had no relationship with these people other than a commercial transaction. So it was nothing personal. It was all business. But with God, here's the point, with God, it is very personal. Okay? It is very personal. God has a personal interest in the accused. 
In fact, it's out of his love for them that he extends justification to them. Look down at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own what? Love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 1, I, I read it to you earlier. The end of verse 4, it says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. God has a personal relationship, a love relationship with the accused by which He then extends to them the mercy and grace of justification. Therefore, when God extends Justification in a legal forensic sense to a sinner, he at the same time gives himself to them in friendship. In friendship. He establishes peace between himself and them. They go from having God as their enemy to God as their friend. That's powerful. That is very powerful. Beloved, in light of the awful reality of His wrath against our sin, our own inherent prideful rejection of His rule over us, what did it cost Him to justify us? What did it cost Him to reconcile us, to bring us into a peace relationship with Him, a relationship of friendship and fellowship? What did it cost Him? It cost him the unspeakable price of his own dear son. How much does God love you? Paul says, verse 8, he loves you so much that while you were still his enemies, Christ died for you. It is through Jesus Christ that we have been justified. It is through him that we are reconciled to God. Only through Christ. This is the objective, if I can say it this way, side of reconciliation, peace, a fruit of justification. But there is a subjective side to it as well. There is a subjective side to this peace. There is a, there's a sense that it is a very real peace. It's not just a legal peace. It is that, but it's more than that. There is a, sub, a subjective side that in which we now feel peace towards God. That we feel reconciled towards God. There is a sense in which we now recognize that God is no longer our enemy. But our friend. You know, the angels know this peace relationship. They know this peace relationship and the, and the way they know it is because they are in confirmed innocence, right? They have never sinned. They have never breached the relationship. But the Christian knows it because of his justification and reconciliation to God. Not so the wicked. Isaiah 48, verse 22. There is no peace for the wicked, the Lord says. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Interesting, isn't it? When we know 
by faith that we have been justified before God. We also know by faith that we are at peace with God. That is, that God is at peace with us. And thus we now begin to subjectively feel peace back towards God. Let me see if I can illustrate this difference between objective and subjective approach. The objective truth that for the believer, God is at peace with them with the subjective reality that we now feel something towards God. Last week, it was actually on the 28th of January, I saw a news report about a really amazing story. There was a, a young man in Massachusetts that was returning home at two in the morning and he decided to take a shortcut across a, an icy pond. The ice gave way underneath him and he fell into the water and began calling out. Now, I grew up in that area and uh, that is a very dangerous thing when you fall into that kind of water. It doesn't take long for hypothermia to overwhelm you and you drown. And so here he is in the water and he's calling out for help. Somebody, please help me. And the providence of God, someone, a neighbor heard his cries at two in the morning. And went down and grabbed a canoe and, and started out on the ice with this canoe, kind of pushing it along, almost like a kind of a skateboard thing. But as he began to move towards the hole where the man was in the ice, the ice began to give way under him and he stopped. He wouldn't go any further. And right at that moment in time, there were some firefighters that had arrived. Someone else had must have woken up and called the fire department. And so these firemen arrived and they, they kind of appeared at, at his shoulder. He said he didn't know where they came from, but they took the canoe from him and they continued to crawl out on the ice towards the hole where this man is drowning, pushing the canoe along and kind of half crawling along the sides of the canoe out towards the man. And the ice is cracking underneath them as they move. Well, there's a good ending to the story. They pulled the man out of the water. He survived. He'd been in the water 30 minutes and he survived. Now, how did the firemen gain the boldness to venture out onto that ice, which was clearly thin and unstable? Now, I don't want to I'm not I don't want to detract from their bravery in any way. But I want to submit to you that their boldness came from their confidence of clutching the side of the canoe. That they understood that if they would fall through the, canoe, uh, through the ice, the canoe would save them. They were holding on to something that would float. And that's where they received their confidence. See, there was an objective truth here. There's a canoe that will float. And that led to the subjective feeling of boldness that they would venture out onto, onto fracturing ice to save this man. See, that's why it's so critical for us to understand what Paul is saying here in Romans 5 and verse 1. That is, we have been justified by faith, and so we have peace with God. That is, our justification has brought us into a status of reconciliation with God. God is at peace with us. That's an objective reality, and it leads to a subjective truth that will give us a boldness in life. I mean, the circumstances of life put you in some pretty scary places. Isn't that true? Some pretty scary times. Where do we find our confidence? Where does the confidence come if you're diagnosed with cancer? Where does the confidence come to, to enter into some kind of ministry thing where you know there's going to be intense opposition? Where does the confidence come for 
somebody to go to the 1040 window to bring the gospel to a culture that is absolutely hostile and in which they will kill you. Where does it come from? It comes from an understanding that they have been justified by faith and they are therefore reconciled to God. They, they are at peace with God. What can man do to me? Right? What did Luther say? The body they may kill. God's truth survives still. Fear not the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill what? Body and soul in hell. See, if the worst they can do to you is kill your body, bring it on. There are some reasons why the believer lacks assurance. There are reasons why uh, the believer can lose his assurance. Again, it there to you on your handout. I've listed five of them. There's probably more, but these are the five that jumped out for me. The first reason why the believer can lose or lack this important assurance, this understanding of their peace relationship with God is because of a lack of correct teaching on the topic. Just a lack of correct teaching. Beloved, we are not saved by a profession of faith. We are saved by the possession of faith. Amen? Many people claim to be Christians because they've walked an aisle or they have prayed a prayer. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, Titus 1.16. There's a real mess in the church today. But the answer to the worldliness in the church is not to deny that we can and should have a full and robust assurance of our position in Jesus Christ. But we need to clearly and carefully teach how a person must, can be saved and how that deliverance comes about why they must be saved, and how they can be saved. That is, we must have a clear understanding of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, 4. 1 through 4. All of them. Why does Paul write Romans chapter 5? He writes it so that we can know that we are justified and reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why he writes the chapter. Chapter 6, he will deal with the question of, now that I'm a Christian, why do I still sin? He'll get there. He's not ready to be there yet. He's ready instead to strengthen your assurance in the work of Christ on your behalf. This is not a doctrine we should back away from. This is a doctrine we should preach with all of our heart. A lack of correct teaching is one of the reasons people lose their assurance or lack it to begin with. Another reason is that they have a weak or tender conscience that is slow to grasp the reality that justification in Christ is real, comprehensive, and final. They're weak or tender in their conscience. 
Back in 1661, the the, uh, Puritan preacher Matthew Mead wrote a book called The Almost Christian Discovered. I can't commend that book to you more highly. It is a very, very good book to read. But and in that book, he is addressing those who have a false assurance of their standing before God. And so he begins to dismantle all the wrong things that people look to in order to convince themselves that they have a right standing before God. Powerful book. But when Mead was was uh, writing this and getting ready to publish it, he had great fear for his congregation. And his fear was that the book might hurt a fragile believer, that it might discourage them as they read it that their weak or tender conscience might become bruised. In fact, he said, and I quote, that he did not want the book to break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering flax. There are those who struggle with assurance because they are weak or tender in their conscience about these things. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I, I read that to you earlier, that long theologically deep section about who we are in Jesus Christ. And Paul ends that section with a prayer. And he prays for the believers. and He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus after instructing the church. He now prays for them that they would understand what it is he has told them. He's praying that they would not be weak in this area. Some are weak. Third reason that people can lack assurance or lose their assurance is because they have fallen into sin. The believer has fallen into sin. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we are instructed not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We grieve the Spirit of God when we live our lives in the flesh. That is, when we live our lives as believers as if we were not believers. That we live as if we are unsaved rather than saved. That grieves the Spirit of God. And it also damages assurance. When the believer either falls into a gross sin or slowly and habitual or or a uh, habitual ignoring of the means of grace, that is that they slowly begin to grow cold towards the things of God. They don't read their Bibles regularly. They don't pray regularly. They don't uh, participate in worship on a regular basis. They don't minister and serve among the people of God. They just sort of slowly begin to dry up and wither and pull back from the people of God. When that happens, they lose first the joy of their salvation and eventually the very assurance of their salvation altogether. So whether it's a plunge into gross sin or whether it's a slow drying up, in either case, what happens is that assurance begins to go away. That's when all the verses on denial and condemnation begin to eat away at you. Cause you to be discouraged. You begin drowning in your own guilt and self-doubt. 
Matthew 7, verse 23, Depart from me, I never knew you, stands like a club over your head. What is the answer? The answer, of course, is not to wallow in that sin. But it is to repent, to confess it to God and, if necessary, to those whom you have offended. It is to cry out to God for His forgiveness. It is to reaffirm what you know to be true about Christ and how one is justified and made right before God. And then it is to exchange that sinful thought or behavior for one that is godly. This is how we come back. This is how we come back. The danger of falling into sin lies close at hand for all of us. There are seasons of dryness in our soul that if left uncorrected will eventually lead to self-doubt. We must come back. A fourth reason that people lose or lack assurance is they have an unhealthy and morose introspection. An unhealthy or morose introspection. They spend too much time navel-gazing. We are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 that we are to test ourselves, right? Examine yourself to see if you be within the faith. So there is an important self-evaluation and examination that should go on in the heart of a Christian, but it can go overboard. This kind of... Doubting can result from a conscience that's become oversensitized through legalism. And it's struggling under the impossible burden of meeting all of these man-made laws. That can lead one to despair, defeat, or hypocrisy. As you pretend that you're doing these things when you're not. And then in the alone times, the guilt begins to pile up. It can also be a a form of concealed pride, the concealed pride of perfectionism. Someone who is engaged in an unhealthy and morose introspection, it can be a manifestation of their own pride of perfectionism. They whisper in their own ear, you should be better than this. You shouldn't be having these struggles. When a believer gets caught in this kind of thinking, you might hear them voice something like this. uh, I can never forgive myself. God can never forgive me. Perfectionism. Legalism. It can eat away at the believer's assurance. The last, number five, is the whisperings of the enemy. The whisperings of the enemy. He is our accuser. If you want a great picture of that, you go to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. You can see a picture there of the accuser standing and accusing. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. He who accuses them before the throne of God day and night. When we sin, and we do, the accusations can come. A little whispering. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't do that. could be your own pride of perfectionism, but it could be the enemy. How can you say that you love Christ and think that thought or have that temptation? The accuser is at work. It's right at that moment that you grab an inkwell and you turn around and you throw it at the wall. Try to drive Satan from the room. No, I'm just kidding you. That's what Luther did, by the way. Okay, That's what Luther did. That's not what you do. Okay? No throwing inkwells at Satan. Inkwells at Satan. What do we do when the accuser comes? We remind ourselves of the truth. We do deserve hell. We do. When the accuser says that you deserve to go to hell, thinking those kind of thoughts, you did that? You deserve to go to hell for that. You look them right in the proverbial eye and you say, you're right. You're absolutely right. Hell is where I belong. But Christ has paid the debt for me. Get out of here. Be gone. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, when you were dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's gone in Jesus Christ. That's your answer. It's gone in Christ. You may not know this Christ this morning. Maybe you know about Him, but you don't know Him. You could not say that you have been reconciled to God through Him, that you have entered into a peace relationship with your Creator. You can't say you don't have the assurance that when you die and is appointed unto man to die once, and then the what? The judgment. When it comes, you have no assurance or confidence that you can stand in that judgment. Because you do not know Christ. Then I invite you to come to this lighted cross over here. The end of the service. We'll have some people there ready to greet you. To open the Word of God with you. To show you how you can be right with your Creator. How you can be justified by grace through faith. But if you do know Christ this morning, if He is your Savior this morning, then I invite you to come boldly with me to the table and to proclaim again what it is He has done for you. Will you join me as we eat together? Gentlemen, if you'll come forward.